If you would like to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 118. morning, if you'll remember, uh, when we were considering Hebrews chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 3, said we saw where, speaking of Jesus, saying that He has been and is worthy more glory than Moses, inferring that He's Worthy of more worship, of course, where Moses is not worthy. He's worthy to be esteemed among Christians, among his followers, more than any man who's ever lived. And we saw how that was explained in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, repetitively speaking of Christ in his office as prophet, priest, and king, the heir of all things, creator of all things. And then we see that affirmed in Psalm 118, verse 16, where it says, The right hand of the Lord is exalted. How do we know that Christ is more worthy and that he has been faithful? Because God himself, the Father, has declared so and has given it as truth and inspiration in His Word, and we see it in Psalm chapter 118. And so I want to to look at that as it is very relevant and works very well with the text that we saw this morning. It begins, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, Let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress I call upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. 
the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. I want to stop right there as we consider the text and how for us as a church that we should consider the text only in light of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you now for wisdom and for discernment, Lord, and for spiritual increase. We ask, Lord, that we be able to lift up our prayers and petitions and our worship even to the glory of your great name and to the exaltation of your Son. And we ask now, Lord, that abundantly would you give us the knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done in your word. Lord, let not the flesh interrupt or let it not hinder us from the truth. Lord, strike from our our hearts and our minds and from my own mouth, Lord, anything that would uh, be false and conflict with what your word actually says. Lord, I pray that your word be upon my tongue this moment as we consider the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Pretty hard to read those first 17 verses of Psalm 118 without thinking about Jesus, isn't it? And yet, we would consider at the time that these things were scribed, the times that they were written in their original transmission, and for many years, they were largely veiled because the Messiah was yet to take upon himself flesh. We were yet to see the fullness of God in Christ. And we were yet to see the propitiation that procured salvation for man. Yet, in Psalm 118, we have a beautiful text that is in some ways a foreshadow, but in the greatest of ways a declaration of what Christ has done. It's the very same salvation that we were discussing and that we have been seeing for some time in Hebrews. And no doubt this is why the the text so greatly marries to what we see in Hebrews chapter 3 because they are indeed talking about the same Lord, the same Savior, the same salvation, and we see it in the passages. These sentences and verses... In the beginning seem like they're very repetitive. And they are. But it is for a great reason. Because the writer, the penman. Is giving a great detail. About what we owe to Jesus Christ. And what he has done. And what he continues to do. And what he has finished in his work on the cross. And it's not repetitive for no reason. But. Rather, the verses seem repetitive because he is stating how important. Just as we would consider text and uh, the words of Christ when it says verily, verily, or truly, truly. It's not repetitive for no reason, but he's, he's drawing our attention to something that needs to be emphasized. And 
Here, what we see is the reality of salvation for anyone who is in Jesus Christ. And it starts with these words, give thanks. Everything to come after that in Psalm 118 is actually a description of what we are giving thanks for. And what we see here is that as it begins, as we're instructed in righteousness as to what man was created to do, and that is to glorify God. How is man doing that? He is giving thanks. Giving thanks for all things, in all seasons, in all situations, for those things that are seemingly good and for those things also that are seemingly bad. There is no distinguishment for what we should give thanks for, but it's saying, period, give thanks. It doesn't matter what for. Whatever, give thanks and give thanks always. But then we see a great reality that we must hold fast to and what we must cling to is that we are to give thanks and when we do give thanks, who are we to give thanks to? We don't give thanks to our neighbor. Our job doesn't get the thanks. Our wife, our husband doesn't need the thanks. They haven't deserved the credit for anything that has happened to us. But rather, the truth is that we should give thanks to the Lord. Because He has worked out these things. He has Position these things so in our life that we are to be thankful for them and we are to give Him credit for everything that has been done for He is using it for His glory and for His kingdom. Therefore, we give thanks to the Lord and it says it because He is good. In one sense, as the psalm was given originally, We talked about how, you know, maybe most people wouldn't have known that this was speaking about the Jesus of Nazareth. But there's the little details in there that would tell us otherwise that this must have been speaking of the Messiah. It says, because he is good. And Jesus himself said, why do you call me good? There is but one good, right? And what we see here, if this passage... And these verses, in fact, do speak of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And then it says, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Then what we recognize is the dual nature of Christ expressed in that because He is man, yet He is good. Therefore, since there is only one who is good, it must be a Christ who is divine in nature. Here is the divine Christ. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Give thanks to God the Father for He is good. Consider this. We do not separate the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for they are one. But in in reality here it is good for us to understand what is going on. We're giving thanks even to God at this point for He is good. And And then I see just how much Christ is being spoken of here. It says, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel, the people of God, oh, let the people of God, His loving kindness is everlasting. Say that, people. Oh, let the house of Aaron. Here are the people who we talked about this morning to whom the priesthood belonged. Say, His loving kindness is everlasting. If anyone understood how loving God was, it was the the people who were the priests. The Levites. 
given to Aaron and his descendants. Don't they know how good the Lord is? And I'll tell you why. Because these people knew the sin of mankind. Think about that. To understand how good God is, we need to understand how terrible sin is. There's no debating that, right? The people to whom the priesthood belong, it is said, Oh, let them say, His loving kindness is everlasting because they know just how bad sin is. And not just their own sin, but consider this. They would know the sin of the people. And in one sense, we're no different. We don't need to be a priest because Jesus gave us a little clue about sin. If you're guilty in one point, we're guilty in all, right? Just one of those sins listed in the Bible. If we've broken one commandment, if we've transgressed just over one point, we've done them all. And we know just how bad sin is. But as I look to the text, I see three times, four times there, through verse 4. His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. The people of the Lord, those who feared Him, those with the knowledge of Him, His loving kindness is everlasting. Repeated over and over again. And what does that say to us? We know that the Lord is good. The first verse tells us that. We've experienced the goodness of the Lord. But I don't think, unless we take this passage for what I'm about to tell you, we don't really understand how good the Lord is unless we look at it this way. His loving kindness is everlasting. What is the loving kindness of God? I would say to you that the greatest Example of the loving kindness of God is that He knew our sin. The prophets tell us of the Messiah. They tell us of what God expects. The Word of God. Jesus Christ Himself preaching righteousness and preaching about sin but preaching Himself as Savior. The loving kindness of God cannot be simply measured here by a good deed or a temporal provision towards His people. But the loving kindness of God, I would submit to you, needs to be defined here in the ultimate sense as Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son. Now consider that. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good for His Savior is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say His Savior, His Son is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say His Savior, His Son is everlasting. That's really the sum of the loving kindness of God is that there is a Christ. 
That is a loving kindness that is everlasting. That is the only loving kindness that could ever procure salvation. That could ever set in stone man's salvation. The loving kindness that is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say His loving kindness is everlasting. Isn't that what a profession of Jesus Christ is? Is to say that He is perfect and that He is good and that He is the eternal Son of God and that He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. He's the only true vine. He's the only good shepherd. He is my rock, my redeemer, and my salvation. This is the thanksgiving to the Lord about His goodness in saving those who belong to Him. It says, from my distress, I called upon the Lord. And here, here's the reality. That we have people today going to churches and rather than calling on Christ in their distress, we have pastors and preachers and teachers, quote unquote, who are telling the people to call upon the name of the Lord, not out of distress, but out of what they can gain. But out of prosperity, call on the name of God. Don't call on Him because you're broken or because you have nowhere else to turn. Call on Him because He's got a lot He can give you. It doesn't sound like the distress that we have here. And the truth is that if we have received the gospel, we cannot know that Christ is good. We cannot know that Christ is able to save. We cannot know that there even is a Savior unless the message of that Savior depicts to us the sinfulness of man. In the message of the gospel, there is one coin and it's two-sided and it describes two things. The goodness and satisfaction and supremacy of Christ. And the other side of that coin is the sinfulness of man. We don't understand the love and kindness of God in Christ unless we understand the wrath, hatred of sin Hatred of those who are sinning. But yet it is not preached. The text says, I call upon the Lord from my distress. Isn't that what we're supposed to see when we look at ourselves and see sin? That we come not out of pride. Not that we are reveling about the sin that we've committed. Some people do that. Some people in their testimonies glorify the sin that supposedly led them to Christ. But in here, it says, My distress, I called upon the Lord. That we're to be broken by sin to a point in which we can look nowhere else than to the cross. And then it says this, not to, not to just end there. The sentence doesn't even have a period on it. It says, The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. When I think about this, I think about Lazarus being bound up. Grave clothes, it said. By now he stinketh, it said. And if the clothes weren't wrapped tight enough, 
He would have been closed off in a tomb. A very small, a very confined place. It says, the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. And I think about the freedom that calling on Christ offers us. That to know Jesus Christ, we are captive and in bondage to sin. And it's got us wrapped up so tight that we cannot escape. And then the Lord is called upon. He answers and when He answers Sets me in a large place. Freedom. Not from the commandments. Not freedom in which we are to do or can do whatever we want. But a freedom to know that Christ has fulfilled all things. It says the Lord is for me. I will not fear. If the Lord is for us, we should not fear. We're urged and called not to worry. And that's exactly what trusting in Him is. It's not worrying about the things that we cannot control or the things that we have no sovereignty over because we do not, in fact, have any. If you ever think that you're in control, you guys know it, just have some kids. Very small creatures, kids. We had the pleasure of experiencing this this afternoon. You can take a 300 pound guy, 150 pound woman, and you can take a 10 pound baby and she can't control it. We can try as we may, but we cannot control it. And what we see is the sovereignty of Christ is able to to control even with a word. Creation. Everything comes into existence by the word of the Lord. And here we are called to be disciples of Christ by the word of the Lord. He doesn't have to physically yoke us. He doesn't have to saddle us. doesn't have to tie us off to a post and beat us. But the word is enough. A discipline. To reprove, to rebuke, for exhortation, admonishment. To lift us up. To break us down. But to know that the Lord is for me. We have no reason to fear. What can man do to me? One simple verse that I would think of in in reference to this. What can man do to me? Fear not the one who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. This is the message of a divine creator who is in control. If you think you have something to fear for and it is not God, you're fearing the wrong entity, the wrong person, the wrong situation. Fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. The Lord is for me. Among those who help me. Therefore I will look with satisfaction. On those who hate me. This is a real struggle. For us. This is a real struggle for me personally. And I would think that because it's in the word. Of God and it's instruction. For the attitude that we should have. It's probably against our human nature. 
to look on those who hate us with satisfaction. What is it about the satisfaction, the satisfaction that we should have in looking on those who hate us? One thing, and one thing only. We don't look to them because we're better. We don't look to them because we have something that they don't. But the reason that we can look with satisfaction is because we see the loving kindness that is everlasting of the Lord. How do we see it? The unregenerate man who hates us. Christ said, if he hated you, remember that he hated me first. If he is truly one who hates us, we can look with satisfaction because we know we could be in that position. We were in that place. We sinned against God just like they had. We had incurred the wrath of God and it abided upon our heads. And if it were not for this everlasting loving kindness, this merciful goodness of God in Jesus Christ, we would be in the same place. We would be damned. Our names blotted out. Our transgressions counted and remembered. But yet it says we can look with satisfaction and it is not satisfaction for the fate of those who would die and go to hell. That is, it. That would be a, a completely wrong way to look at that. If you are satisfied in your enemies. Because they will go to hell. There's a problem. Before Christ returns. Before the consummation. The way that we must feel is to love our neighbor. It doesn't say love your saved neighbor. But to love our neighbor as ourselves. To be so concerned with the one who is headed to hell that we are willing to preach and proclaim the words of life that will snatch his soul from the fire. And yes, in the day of judgment, the saints will know what God is doing, what Christ is commanding, what his decree will be. Yes, it will be good. Whatever he decides, whoever he pardons and those who he doesn't, yes, it will be good. But until then... Our position must be out of concern for the soul. Because we know that God is good. And what does it say next about Jesus Christ? It says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in a man. That is salvation. Don't trust in self. Don't trust in government. Don't trust in your spouse. Don't trust in your good deeds. Trust in the Lord, better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in a man because the truth is trusting in Jesus Christ is not just trusting in man. Trusting in Jesus Christ is trusting in the unique one of God who is both man and God. When we place our trust in Christ, we cannot simply draw a line and say we're trusting in the prophet Jesus Christ who was a man, but we can say we're trusting in the man who was prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And that is the difference. That's the difference of the Jesus of the Bible and any other Jesus that man may create in his own mind. To trust in this God, to trust in this Lord, is not to trust in mere man, but to trust in the sovereign one. 
It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And guess what? This morning we're not trusting in princes. We're trusting in the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. There is no other. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. When I think about this, it says it so many times there. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. And think about this. This depicts for us humanity. A number of men in which we, we can never count. You can have all the censuses you want. We can never count the number But the reality is that there are so many evil ones that would encompass us. Seeking to devour. Yet he says, I will surely cut them off. There won't be any wolves getting to the sheep of Christ. They'll try. The hireling will run. Looking for escape. But the good shepherd... Is always there. He's always on watch. And as we saw, contrary to those who were trusting in Baal, our God does not sleep. Our God is not off taking a walk. His ear is not so far that He cannot hear. But here what we have described is the many numbers, those who would find this wide path to destruction, but also in it, To take it to a more personal level. It surrounded me. And I should cut them off. If it's speaking about sinful man. Sinful cities. Sinful nations. It must also be speaking about sin. To take it to its very starting point. To apply it to our own lives. Sin surrounds me. Evil surrounds me. The desires of my heart in opposition to what the Spirit commands of me. Flesh warreth against the Spirit. Spirit against the flesh. Paul said the things that He wants to do, He does not. And the things that He does not want to do, He does. And this is the spiritual battle. Taking it from the very smallest point, the beginning, sin in our own lives, and then taking it to the world. Sinful man, everyone sinful, surrounding. Yet, in the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. Let me just submit to you this. That sin and corruption will not be put off any other way, will not be cut off in any other way unless it is in the name of the Lord. Unless it's by the work of Jesus Christ. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling. But... The Lord helped me. Every man since Adam, by his own desire, by the things that he loves in the flesh, has been pushed. He's been prodded. And the truth is that sin has beat us into a submission that we enjoy. 
That's what sin is. It's an enjoyable incurring of the wrath of God. We know what it is. We know what it brings. And what do we do? We still run after it. We still partake. But it says, I was falling. Death was on its way. Just a moment away from clashing into darkness. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. And He has become my salvation. And what I see in that is that the Lord is my strength. It says that the strength of men is weakness actually. That's what the New Testament calls it. The wisdom of man is actually ignorance. It's stupidity. It's foolishness, the Bible says. And here we have in Psalm 118 describing this for us. The Lord is my strength. I am only strong as long as I have the Christ. And I have a song. Remember the, the, the hymn we sing? I have a song that Jesus gave me. The song of those winning the battle is a song of Jesus Christ. Songs and hymns and spiritual songs. This is the melody that the saints of the Lord are making because His loving kindness is everlasting. And we're singing this song. And He has become my salvation. This is not to say that Christ is a created being. But what we see so well here in Psalm 118 and in Hebrews is that He is appointed... Heir of all things. He is appointed as the Savior, as the Christ, what we saw last week in verse 2. Christ has been appointed. He has become my salvation. Before Christ was there, He existed eternally. He saw the sinfulness of man. He has decreed that man must die. That their wages of sin is death. And what did Christ do? Because men could not escape death. And He said when He created man that He created him upright and that He would have man to glorify Him forever. What does Christ do? He must become their salvation. The text says that. He has become my salvation. My rock. My redeemer. My fortress. My stronghold. My anchor. He has become my salvation. You see, what we have in the saving mercy and grace of God in Christ is a Jesus who is prophet, preaching who God is, what He has done, and what He, excuse me, what He expects. And what He will do for men. And then we have Jesus, the priest, who is making intercession for man. And in that, He is unique because He is the priest who has come of God, who is speaking the Word of God, who is proclaiming the Word of God, and He is telling that we need a sacrifice. And what does this priest, Jesus Christ, do? He becomes the sacrifice. He is the propitiation. He is the Lamb. The Lamb that we can see in Psalm 18 because He was slain before the foundation of the world. He has become my salvation. And in a literal sense, we know that Jesus Christ was the salvation for any man that will come even tomorrow. 
Can we agree on that? That that Jesus died over 2,000 years ago and He is the salvation for anyone who will be saved tomorrow? But the reality is that when we read it in its context, in its nature, He has become my salvation. There is the, the realization of Christ as the prophet, priest, and king. As the Redeemer. The realization that Christ... Not that just that He died, but to see now in this moment that Jesus Christ has died for me. It's so personal. This psalm is so personal. He's not just the salvation for those who are saved. He is my salvation. He has become my Savior. Before we knew Christ... He was everybody else's Savior, but you would deny that He was your Savior. I would deny that He was my Savior. But today, because of the Gospel, because of the Word, because of the goodness and the loving kindness of God, we have seen the truth of Jesus Christ and we know He has become our salvation. Again, what happens when we see Christ for who He is? Well, one... We see ourselves for who we are. And because we're in the deepest pit of despair, because out of our distress we're calling on His name and He is answering us, then we have verse 14. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. You know why the sound of salvation, the joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of only the righteous? Because of the unrighteous believed the message that we have, but not unto salvation, there will be only groaning, only crying, only despair and tears because they know that they will be facing the judgment of God. So what we have in the tents of the righteous is joyful shouting a sound that will be here will be heard all around the world. But the truth for the unrighteous is the weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's the only sound you will hear. Blaspheming God and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Makes so much sense as we see that said the builder of the house is worthy of more glory than the house itself, right? Because here it is again describing the house, the shelter, the tent it says. Salvation is in the tent of the righteous. Salvation is in the house of the believer. Salvation is in the body of the believer. The joyful shouting is coming out as we know that Christ is coming in. We are glorifying, we are worshiping, we are praising the God who has saved us because righteousness has come inside. What a spiritual truth to take from the passage. The tents of the righteous only exist because the righteous one is in the tents. The only reason that these bodies can offer praise and worship and glorify the great God of heaven is because Jesus Christ is indwelling. It must be a reality. Then it says, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. 
The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. What Jesus Christ has done in salvation is good. It's wonderful. It's great. It's the greatest thing that you'll ever see. It's the most wonderful thing that you'll ever experience. If that is not the truth, you might as well leave. Not only does He do good, does He do exceedingly great wonders and miracles in saving mankind, But it says, this right hand of the Lord is exalted. Jesus Christ is exalted. If your Christianity does not call you to exalt Jesus Christ above all else, it is not Christianity. If the truth of salvation does not cause us to shout... For joy. To sing for joy. Then it is not true salvation. We have to deal with these things. And, and, the, and the, the truth is that. Doesn't look like that all the time does it? I mean that's. What we're here for. To be transformed. To be re- renewed in mind. To be washed. With the word. As Hebrews said, to remember the Christ, to consider the Jesus of our confession, to not so quickly withdraw and be swept away from the salvation that we have in Him. I don't know if everybody does this, but my wife can tell you. There's some times when I just wake up and I just sing. And there's times throughout the day when I'm just so greatly reminded of what Christ has done, I just sing. I don't know what else to do. And it's kind of funny because most uh, of the few really godly men that I know and that I have the privilege of staying with them at times and one of them being rusty, There are just days when he's up and he's singing. There's just days when he's just praising the Lord in song and in him. Now just look at the text and see that the reality is that Christ gives us a song just as the hymn says. I have a song that Jesus gave me. It was sent from heaven above. What a theologically deep statement that is. The song Jesus gives us is the song of the Savior. And the song is sent from heaven by the power of the Spirit, by the Word of God. And to think that it's sent from heaven above, being sent by God, and that it is God Himself, Jesus Christ. Here is a reason for thanksgiving. Here is the the good news of salvation. Here is the eternal, everlasting, loving kindness of God the Father. It is Jesus Christ. There's nothing else to look forward to. There's nothing else to look beyond to. The Alpha, the Omega. The beginning and the end. 
There's no other place we can put our trust. There's no other help for falling man. There is no other uh, conqueror who will cut them off, as the text says. But we are urged and we are called and we must take refuge in the Lord. The unique thing is there's only one way to take refuge. Bible's very clear. There's one way to take refuge and that is to trust in Jesus Christ. No other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we consider your word again this evening, Lord, we're just so thankful uh, for the provision of the day, for your spirit to be with us, to minister to us the great good and wonderful news of your son, Jesus Christ, who has come from heaven, uh, condescended as man taking upon flesh, Lord, dying in my stead. How wonderful it is. How terrible am I that I would send perfect man to the cross. And my sin is before me, Lord, and it is tattling on me right now. It's telling the truth of my heart. We have no answer. But before your throne, we do have one plea. His name is Jesus Christ. Lord, today let us, from this point forward, Lord, in our lives until He returns and calls us home, God, let us worship and exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, make us look more like Your Son. Lord, we pray that whatever means necessary, that You would take Your Word, God, and conform us to His image. We love you, Lord, and ask that you would help us to love one another. In Jesus' name we pray.